and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills podcast. I'm Maura McIntosh and I'm a professional support consultant in the disputes team in London and one of the general editors of our textbook Class Actions in England and Wales published by Sweet and Maxwell. I have with me Julian Copeman who's a London disputes partner and one of the authors of the textbook. This is the fourth in our series of podcasts to mark the launch of our second edition and in this episode we'll focus on data class actions. Now, data is an obvious area for potential class actions, given the exponential growth in the volumes of personal data collected and shared by businesses in recent years, the development of legal rights in relation to data and increased public awareness of those rights, and the fact that the loss or misuse of data can affect very large numbers of individuals. As many listeners will be aware, this is an area that generated quite a lot of excitement, uh, particularly because the Court of Appeals decision in the Lord and Google case a couple of years ago suggested that it might be possible to pursue data class actions in the English courts on an opt out basis uh, using the hitherto rarely used CPR 19 representative action procedure. Now, the Supreme Court's decision in that case in late 2021 took some of the wind out of those sails. But a very recent High Court decision may breathe new life back into the debate. So we'll come back to talk about all that as it's uh, really very significant for the future of data class actions and class actions generally. But before we do that, Julian, um, can, can you give listeners some context by explaining what sorts of claims we're talking about when we refer to data class actions? Thanks, Maura. Yes. And hello, everyone. So data class actions can be brought relying on a, a various causes of action. Typically, those will include breaches of data protection legislation. So historically, that would be the Data Protection Act 1998 uh, and and now would be uh, under the GDPR, UK GDPR and uh, Data Protection Act 2018. But you'll also have claims in misuse of private information, breach of confidence, uh, and there may also be claims uh, for breach of contract or consumer legislation uh, or negligence. And increasingly, as we may come on to later, breaches of competition law. Perhaps a simpler way of looking at these actions is to see them as falling into two broad categories, first being data security breaches and second being sort of challenges to business use of data. So that first type, these are claims relating to um, data security breaches where there's been, for example, a cyber attack or perhaps some technical fault, which has caused data to be lost, destroyed or altered. And the the second broad type uh, is where the claim is being used really to challenge the business use of data. So claims arising from alleged unlawful use or misuse of personal data of a business's customers or other individuals. A high profile example of the first sort of claim relating to data security breaches is the Morrison's case, which related to a disgruntled employee of the Morrison supermarket chain who published the payroll data of about 100,000 Morrison's employees on the Internet. The employee was identified and successfully prosecuted, but the incident led to a group claim against Morrison's by about 10,000, so about 10% of the affected employees, alleging not only direct liability under relevant data protection legislation, but also that Morrison's was vicariously liable uh, for the employee's action, even though he'd been acting maliciously. Now, those claims ultimately failed although the vicarious liability claim had to go all the way to the Supreme Court before it was held to be unsustainable. An example of the second category is the Lloyd and Google case you mentioned, Maura, which relates to the alleged misuse of customers' data. In that case, Richard Lloyd, a former executive director of the UK Consumers Association, sought to bring a claim against Google on behalf of more than 4 million 
UK resident iPhone users, alleging that some of their internet activity had been secretly tracked by the defendant for commercial purposes uh, in 2011 and 2012 uh, in breach of the Data Protection Act 1998. And that claim, uh, as you mentioned, was also ultimately failed at the Supreme Court level. Thanks for that. Yeah, as I said earlier, the, the Lloyd and Google, Google claim is, is very significant, uh, particularly because it was an attempt to bring a data class action on an opt out basis. But um, before we say anything more about the, the case specifically, can you just briefly explain the opt in opt out distinction and, and why it's so important? Yes. So an opt out action is the sort uh, of, of class action claim that most people think of when they hear the phrase class action. And it's the model you see in the U.S., where a claim can be brought on behalf of the entire class of those alleged to have suffered from particular conduct, uh, which could be taking medication which turned out to have damaging side effects or buying a product at an inflated price due to a cartel, or in the present context, having their personal data made public in some way as a result of a data breach. By contrast, an opt-in class action is one where the claimants have to take a positive step to join a class, join a group, in order to benefit from it. Now, for obvious reasons, opt-out actions are much more attractive to uh, claimants and in particular to funders of claims because you don't need to go out and advertise and persuade individual claimants to come forward and join your claim, uh, which you know could be time consuming um, and costly. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you only might only get quite a small group. So 10 percent of those affected in the Morrison's claim joined that group. Um, now, that could be quite challenging where the individual claims themselves are quite a low value, e- even though the total loss is quite large, because there's not a lot of incentive, really, for the individual cl- claimants to sign up. Most class actions in English courts do have to be brought on an individual basis or managed together in some way, such as a group litigation order or other bespoke case management regime. But the fundamental point is that you've got to get individual claimants to sign up and be named to opt in to that claim. The, 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 there is an exception for competition claims, which is the Competition Appeal Tribunal, for which there's a specific regime that allows claims to be brought as either opt in or opt out, depending on what the tribunal considers most suitable in the particular case. Yes, um, the, the the competition regime that you mentioned was considered in the second podcast in this series back in January. So um, I'd encourage listeners to go back and play that episode if they want more detail on, on that regime. And as flagged earlier, of course, there's one other exception to the opt-in model uh, in the English courts, which is the representative action procedure. Um, now, that's of very long standing, but it's currently embodied in CPR 19.6. Um, I should say soon to be CPR 19.8 under some rule changes that are going to come in from the 6th of April, which don't actually make substantive changes, but they've reorganized and, and, and rationalized the relevant rules to some extent. Um, so whatever it's called, uh, can, can you tell us about that procedure? Yes, the representative action allows a claim to be brought on behalf of all those who've got the same interest in it. Uh, So there's no need for the representative parties to come forward or be named, uh, as I was just talking about for an opt-in claim. The representative parties are bound by any judgment or order in the case, although such a judgment or order can only be enforced by or against the representative parties with the court's permission. Essentially, though, the representative action procedure has not been widely used over the years because the court has always had a strict interpretation of this same interest requirement. 
it's always been generally considered that it couldn't be used to bring a damages claim, uh, since in general terms, even where the claimants have suffered as a result of the same wrongdoing, the loss and damage will usually vary between them depending on the claimant's individual circumstances. Yes, so if it was thought that the representative action couldn't be used to claim damages, uh, maybe you could just explain how the claimant in the Lloyd and Gould case hoped to be able to recover on behalf of the representative class um, using that machine. Yes, I mean, this seemed to be, for, for, for a while, a way to really open up uh, opt-out claims in the in the data class action sphere. Uh, and it was because the claimant in Lloyd and Google uh, had seemingly found a way around the problem caused by the same interest requirement, in particular uh, because they were disavowing any reliance on the individual circumstances of class members when they brought forward the claim. So the case was that damages could be awarded under the Data Protection Act 1998 on the basis of an equal standard tariff award for each class member to reflect uh, the infringement of their rights and their loss of control of their personal data. It was, in a sense, um, a lowest common denominator claim for, for everybody within that class, not taking into account any other particular um, issues facing individual uh, members of the class. Initially, the High Court refused to allow the action to proceed as a representative action, saying that the compensation could not be awarded under the, act, under the Act merely for the fact of the infringement and associated loss of control over personal data. But then the Court of Appeal disagreed and allowed the claim to proceed on the basis that damages were in principle capable of being awarded for loss of control of data, and the Court of Appeal's view that the judge had applied too stringent a test of the same interest. So at that point, it appeared that the court that it would be allowed to go forward. The Court of Appeal had allowed it to go forward as a representative action. And as you say, that generated a lot of excitement because it, it, it appeared to mean that data class actions could potentially be brought on behalf of very large numbers of individuals on this representative action basis. And even if uh, the damages that could be awarded on to any individual you know, in the data action were small, and that was likely to be the case because you're talking about a loss of control of personal data while stripping out particular uh, personal circumstances. And we're talking about this lowest common denominator I mentioned. Um, the aggregate award could be very large because of the numbers of people involved in any particular uh, class uh, and the opt-out nature of that class, uh, which was making um, claims like that extremely attractive to litigation funders, uh, who obviously would take a cut uh, from from those damages. Um, and extremely high risk for businesses. And but by way of an example from the Lloyd and Google case itself, the claimants were suggesting uh, a putative tariff of £750 per head for, for the individual class members. Now, putting aside whether that was realistic or, or too high, uh, or using that number, when you've got a proposed class of some 4 million people, that was leading to a, a claim of about £3 billion. And, and so you can understand that um, uh, while the uh, post the Court of Appeal judgment and pending the Supreme Court judgment, uh, a number of claims were either being brought you know, brought forward, uh, stayed pending the um, Supreme Court judgment, or generally being prepared. So there, there was a lot of interest and potentially would have been a lot of claims coming forward if the Supreme Court had upheld the Court of Appeal. However, as you mentioned, in November uh, 2021, the Supreme Court allowed Google's appeal against uh, the uh, the early judgment of the Court of Appeal 
and found that the relevant provisions of the 1998 Act could not be interpreted as giving right uh, to a compensation uh, wherever a non-trivial data breach was committed. In other words, you had to have some actual damage suffered as a consequence of any breach, which has to be separate from the breach itself. And so the claimants couldn't recover without proof of either material damage, such as financial loss, or mental distress. And because the claimants had declined to plead causation and damage on an individual basis, given that they disavowed that and, and were trying to go for this um, uniform tariff, the, the claim was essentially bound to fail. Thanks. So does the Lloyd and Google decision ultimately mean the door is closed to uh, data class actions being brought on on an opt-out basis using that procedure? Well, not necessarily. There are a few potential avenues uh, that uh, have been left open to pursue or potentially pursue that arise from the Lloyd and Google decision. And actually, as you mentioned earlier, there's been a very recent High Court decision in a case called Commission Recovery and Marks and Clark that might actually liberalise the position even further, although that wasn't a data class action. Um, and it's not clear yet how that decision might translate across into data claims. Thanks. That, that's interesting. Let's come back to the Marks and Clark decision. Um, but first, maybe um, if you could explain what avenues Lloyd and Google itself leaves open for claimants who want to uh, bring opt out data actions using this uh, representative action procedure. Sure. The first point uh, to note is that Lord Leggett, uh, giving the judgment of the Supreme Court, expressly stated uh, that the need for individual assessment of damages for a representative action doesn't necessarily preclude using it uh, to resolve some elements of a claim. He suggested, in fact, that there could be what he called a bifurcated process in which common issues are decided through a representative claim, leaving any issues which require individual determination to be dealt with later through separate claims. In fact, Lord Leggett went as far as to comment that if Mr Lloyd had proposed a bifurcated process of that sort, he couldn't see any objection to there having been a representative claim to establish liability, to establish whether Google was in breach of the relevant legislation. And then that the uh, any ensuing actual damages claims, if, if, they'd, if they'd succeeded, could have been brought subsequently on an individual basis. Now, the, the obvious difficulty in trying to bring uh, those sorts of bifurcated claims um, is, is how you would fund that. As I mentioned earlier, these class actions generally have funders behind them. But if you're only going to fund the initial liability stage, how do you get funded? Um, because at that stage, there's not going to be a pot of damages from which the law firm and the funder can get paid because you're only dealing with liability. And there might well be depending on whether the initial stage has succeeded, damages at a later stage. But of course, um, the litigation funder, the, the original claimant law firm, has no control over that later stage. So um, there'd be no guarantee that they would benefit from subsequent success in, in damages claims. Other funders could come in at that point, uh, potentially offer cheaper deals and for, you know, for the damages stage. And so the original funder might not recoup their stage one costs at all. So it's essentially a free rider problem. Now, when this all first came out, there'd been sufficient interest in the possibility of opt-out representative action claims in this area that um, a lot of thought went into whether there were creative solutions around that, such that this, these kind of claims could be brought on a bifurcated basis. But here we are sort of 18 months later, and I'm not aware 
of any funders who've come back uh, and, and tried to bring one of these claims on, on a bifurcated approach. So it looks like that funding barrier uh, is turning out to be a substantial one. Thanks. Yeah, I, I can see that funding the, the representative stage uh, of that pr- process might not be an attractive prospect. So it's hard to see how those claims could get off the ground in, in practice. Um, you said there are a few potential avenues left over for uh, claims by Lewis and Google before um, getting into the, the complication of the Marks and Clark case. So um, do, do you want to comment on the others? Yes, thanks. I mean, the, the others are to do with the particular cause of action that was pursued in Lloyd and Google. As I mentioned, that was a claim under the old 1998 Data Protection Act, rather than the current legislation, which is essentially the UK GDPR, which superseded it. And Lord Leggett said expressly that he was not considering the position under the GDPR. So that, that does leave the door potentially open for future loss of control claims under the, the current uh, legislation particularly because the compensation regime under the GDPR expressly refers to compensation being available for not only material damages, but also non-material damages. And the recitals to the GDPR specifically reference loss of control over personal data as an example of possible damage uh, resulting from a personal data breach. Now, it, it did appear that this issue might be tested quite soon, uh, in a claim that was being a class uh, action being brought against TikTok, which had been stayed pending the Supreme Court's judgment uh, in Lloyd and Google. And following that judgment, the defendants uh, invited the claim to discontinue the claim on the basis of the findings of the Supreme Court in Lloyd and Google. But instead, the claimant applied for permission to serve the claim out of the jurisdiction, arguing that the Supreme Court judgment was irrelevant because this claim, uh, this TikTok claim, was brought under the GDPR uh, and also misuse of private information, which I'll come back to in a moment. And the court accepted that there was a serious issue to be tried as to the proper interpretation of the GDPR and whether the Supreme Court's conclusion in Lloyd and Google could properly be distinguished. And so on that basis, they gave permission to serve the claim out of the jurisdiction. As it turned out, uh, the claim was discontinued a few months later So it does remain to be seen whether going forward claimants will try to and be able to pursue representative claims uh, in a similar sort of way as the the claim that was was attempted in Lloyd and Google, but under the GDPR seeking damages on a uniform tariff basis in the particular circumstance of the GDPR and whether that would make a difference. The other possibility, as I've just alluded to, is the possible is a claim for tort of misuse of private information rather than under data protection legislation. Uh, that's a tort of strict liability. So you don't need to show that the misuse caused any material damage or distress. And it was actually recognised in Lloyd and Google that it would have been open to Mr Lloyd to claim damages for misuse of private information, at least in his own right, without the need to show damages in that sense. So there is a question as to whether representative action could be brought relying on misuse of private information without the need to plead individual circumstances. And again, we may see this play out because um, there is a claim uh, on foot where the claim is trying to do just that, which is a claim against Google and DeepMind Technologies on behalf of some 1.6 million individuals alleging unlawful use of their confidential medical records. The obvious challenge for such claims 
is that even if damages can be awarded without proof of material damage or distress on this kind of lowest common denominator type basis, the court may still need to look at factors such as the extent of the misuse of the individual's private information to assess damages. And in other words, there may not be a neat tariff that could be awarded in a representative action without the need to consider individual circumstances. Anyway, I understand that there is an application to strike out the DeepMind Technologies claim uh, at some point this quarter, so we may not have to wait too long to find the answer to that question. Thanks. That's interesting. Lots, lots to look out for there. Um, so coming back to the Marks and Clark case, then, can you tell us a bit about that case and how it might affect the landscape for claimants who want to bring representative actions on an opt-out basis? Yes. Yeah, so this is um, this is very recent. I say late February, a decision by Mr. Justice Knowles uh, in which he allowed claims for secret commissions to proceed as a representative action uh, on behalf of all those clients for whom the relevant commissions were paid. So it's not a data class action, but in the context of everything we've been talking about in Google, it's um, you know it, it, it looks like it could be pretty important. Uh, the context of that case of the Marks and Clark's case is that um, they were all clients of a firm of patent attorneys, and the secret commissions were paid allegedly uh, in respect of client referrals to an IP renewal services provider. But the, the background doesn't really matter. The important point is that the decision, Mr. Justice Knowles' decision, appears to go much further than the Supreme Court's decision in Lloyd and Google. Uh, as I said a bit earlier, Lord Leggett in Lloyd, in Lloyd and Google recognised that you might have a bifurcated procedure where you bring a representative action for, for instance, liability, but then where individual circumstances and clients differ, you, you would have individual claims. So essentially, you're you're bifurcating the, the genuinely same interest elements as a as a representative action, and then having uh, a different individual actions or gr- smaller group actions for, for 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 issues which do not fall within the the standard view of what the same interest is. In this more recent case, Mr. Justice Knowles seemed to accept that actually a representative action was appropriate simply because there was no actual conflict of interest between the claimants even though there were obvious differences between their claims in terms of things like quantum limitation and knowledge, which would normally, on some traditional view, not count as having the same interest. Uh, so I'll have to see where that goes. I understand that uh, Mr Justice Knowles is due to hear an application for permission to appeal. Um, if he refuses permission, no doubt the defence will seek permission from the Court of Appeal. Um, so subject to all that, how all that progresses, the decision could lead uh, to a more liberal approach to the use of the representative action procedure. Given the, the kind of clear finding in Lloyd and Google about bifurcated actions and so on, it, it may not be that easy to apply that kind of liberal approach to claims, at least under the Data Protection Act 1998, um, because the, the Supreme Court there was quite clear about uh, the need to prove damage on an individual basis. So we'll have to see, but as far as representative actions um, in relation to data breaches are concerned, we might still be left with that bifurcated approach. Um, subject to the points I was making about GDPR and misuse of private information, but it may have a much, much more broad impact uh, more widely. Interesting. Thank you. So moving away from representative actions, then, are there are, are there any other routes that claimants can take to pursue data claims uh, you know, on a class or collective basis? Yes. Yeah, so, of course, the traditional opt-in approaches uh, are 
available and and are used, uh, you can still club together uh, to bring a group action um, or a or a GLO. Uh, one example, uh, and there are a, a number over the last few years, but one example is the British Airways data event litigation, which relates back to a cyber attack uh, in 2018. Uh, and that was a case where a group litigation order was made, uh, and the case has in fact since settled. But it illustrates, I think, the challenge of bringing data claims on an opt-in basis. Uh, I understand that about 23,000 claimants uh, out of 500 or so, 500,000 or so uh, individuals who received notification from uh, BA about the breach and therefore were in principle eligible to bring the claim actually signed up. And that's about 5%, so even lower than the 10% I mentioned uh, in relation to Morrison's. It's not a massive take-up rate. Um, and you can see that, you know, on an individual basis, actually opting in where where the likely damages per head aren't, aren't going to be very high is, is a bit of a chance to, to gather people up and get them to, to, to join the group. Interestingly, another route we're seeing at the moment seems to be to try to reformulate uh, what is essentially a data class action as a competition claim, uh, typically by alleging abuse of dominant position. Uh, and of course, the purpose of that is that you may be able to bring that as an opt out claim in the competition appeal tribunal. And one example of, of what's been happening on that recently is the claim that was brought against Meta or Facebook uh, in 2022. Now, that phenomenon isn't limited to data claims. Other claims have been brought under the aegis of the competition regime, which you wouldn't obviously class as competition claims to, to kind of get trying to get that opt out procedure. And so other examples will be recently publicised claims against water and sewage. Uh, companies uh, relating to water quality, but it, it's it's definitely notable that's happening in the data claims sphere. In fact, the claim against Meta has received uh, a significant setback recently. The Competition Appeal Tribunal sent the claims back to think again about their proposed methodology for assessing damages, saying that there would need to be a root and branch evaluation before a collective proceedings order could be made in that case. Uh, the tribunal granted a six-month stay of the application for that purpose, so we'll have to wait and see whether the claimants can satisfy the tribunal on a second attempt so that the claim can, be, can proceed. But clearly for now, you can see that the competition route isn't necessarily straightforward for, for claimants either. Thanks, Julian. That's all, all very interesting and, and, and brings us to the end of our podcast uh, for today. So um, I'll also say thank you to all of those listening and we'll be back with further editions of this series.